I'm very honored and happy to be here with you this morning. Uh, it's been a wonderful couple of weeks being able to share uh, with you, the Saints of Holy Communion, um, in adult education and worship today. And uh, I thank you very much for the uh, invitation. Um, my husband is uh, Bill Perman, the pastor at First Presbyterian Church right down the street. And so all week we've had dueling sermons going. And uh, he is, in fact, preaching right now. And so um, it's, uh, it's a wonderful uh, opportunity to be with you and to compare our work this week. Uh, and um, I bring you greetings from that congregation. Yesterday, following the inauguration of Donald J. Trump as president, millions of women and their male allies took to the streets in cities across this country and around the world in what is now being called the largest single protest demonstration in U.S. history, with almost three million total participants. To read the protest signs, there were many different messages of these marches, from denouncing the president's record and rhetoric of sexual assault, to his assailing his promise to repeal the uh, Affordable Care Act, to challenging his agenda on we women's reproductive rights, and his lack of agenda on civil rights, to his promises to create a Muslim registry, uh, a ban on new immigrants, and to build a wall on the Mexican border. The Women's March on Washington and its sister marches around the country were a movement of Americans mobilized by worry and common commitment to protect the lives of women, the marginal, the sick, and the disenfranchised in our country, and to hold out hope for movements for greater inclusion and that they might continue in our nation. Now, one way to see this Herculean effort of organizing and human power has been as a fool's errand. Certainly, this has been a common characterization of the march by Trump's supporters on social media. <clears throat> Quit your crying, you crybabies, comments would read. No one cares what you think. You lost. We won. He's president. Game over. And that is certainly the way the Trump administration has seemed to respond to initial reports from the marches. Now, officially, the administration, at least to my knowledge, has had no comment. But while over 500,000 people filled the streets of Washington, D.C., protesting his leadership, President Trump just went about his business to an interfaith church service and then to the CIA for his <clears throat> first 
<coughs> excuse me, first official visit. In Trump's worldview and logic, you got the sense that these millions of Americans, these massive crowds, and I was among them, and I know many of you were too, along with your uh, rector. All of that is irrelevant. Nothing but a bunch of sore losers. Perhaps another way to see it, however, outside the calculus of raw power, is that these marches and the collective social, political, and spiritual impact of them is something beyond the binary of winning and losing. People poured forth voluntarily on a Saturday <coughs> to share their collective concern and to give voice to their values. Values for LGBTQ rights, women's reproductive rights, for health care and education. There were signs for Black Lives Matter, supporting immigrants, for DACA students. It was a massive outreach of Americans to join together and affirm what it means to pursue liberty and justice for all. And in this way, it was quite simply a powerful demonstration of patriotism and love. This morning's gospel lesson from Matthew 4 offers a story that presents Jesus' message and movement as something beyond the calculus of raw power. In the most basic terms, Jesus' work of proclaiming the kingdom of God, particularly after the arrest and impending state execution of his mentor, John the Baptist, by the Roman puppet king Herod Antipas, well, that mission was nothing but a fool's errand. After all, Rome held all the power, and the proclamation of any alternative empire would have been seen as seditious and futile. One might imagine a tweet from Herod's official account. I heard that now an upstart Galilean peasant is stirring up the people, talking about the kingdom. Sad. <laughs> Apologize. But Matthew lays out the story so that we can appreciate how Jesus' kingdom and Herod's kingdom are grounded in very different authorities. In the text prior to this morning's reading, Jesus 
is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. At one point, he is offered all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All he has to do is worship Satan. Jesus replies in the story with a quote from Israel's Decalogue, the first commandment. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. While this interchange is often read as a proof of Jesus' faithfulness, it also importantly associates the kingdoms of this world and their power with Satan as opposed to God. In other words, it's not just that Jesus is faithful to the first commandment. It is also that he rejects how power is brokered in the kingdoms of this world. Jesus proclaims an alternative kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. One of the elements of Matthew's gospel that we have shared in adult education last week and uh, just earlier this morning over a fantastic breakfast. If you don't go to this forum, I highly recommend it. Breakfast. I'm sure all of the adult education is great too, but the breakfast. So one of the great opportunities that I've had is to, is to work on this context of the Mathean community and then the rich opportunity to get to preach with you all as well. And in that work, we've been looking at how Matthew's gospel is most likely a story that functioned to form an early Jewish emerging Christian sectarian community of study, prayer, and mission in the late first century of the Common Era. A component of this community was its zeal to integrate the wisdom of Jesus, which Matthew actually adds to Mark's outline through the source material of Jesus' sayings, nicknamed Q, to integrate that wisdom into the daily life, piety, and practice of the members of the Mithian community. This was a big part of why Matthew renovated Mark's gospel in the first place to create a foundation document for his church so that members would not only know what to teach about Jesus as they went out into the world, but also that they would be inspired by how to live like Jesus in the everyday life of the community. The foundation of Jesus' wisdom in Matthew's Gospel is an unflinching understanding of the sovereign authority of the creator of this world. <clears throat> Much as his quotation of the first commandment 
to Satan in the temptation, Jesus grounds many of his sayings in the Gospel of Matthew with the knowledge that God is God and we are not. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Or, you cannot serve God and wealth. Or, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Seen collectively, Jesus' wisdom in Matthew bears the message of God's gracious provision for God's people. Trust in this one, whom the psalmist says is light, salvation, stronghold, and source of life, is the beginning of a life of justice and mercy lived without worry or fear. Seen through this foundation, the activity of Jesus in Matthew 4, after the arrest of John the Baptist, actually makes a lot of sense. Yes, John has been arrested. Yes, Rome has seemed once again to have had the last word and hold all the power. But because Jesus bears the wisdom that the Lord, and not Herod, is his light and salvation, he has no reason to fear. His proclamation of the kingdom of heaven following John's arrest is riddled with no self-doubt or anxiety. Matthew reports that he leaves Nazareth and makes his home in Capernaum. And there, by the Sea of Galilee, he begins his mission and ministry. Trust in God clarifies for Jesus that Herod's schemes and the emperor's reach are not ultimate or defining. His work is not of their kingdom but of the kingdom of heaven. Now the activities of Jesus' kingdom work are essentially two, according to Matthew. First, Jesus builds a community of disciples. And second, he proclaims the saving message of the kingdom by caring for all those he encounters, who are sick and in distress, who are marginalized and cast out. Reflecting on Matthew's story as a foundation document for his community, it is clear how this telling of Jesus' mission and ministry orients Matthew's instruction of that work for his community's members. Matthew's church follows Jesus in the work, building community 
and caring for those who are sick, afflicted with diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and the paralyzed. The vision, passion, and energy for this work flows from the foundational practice of trusting. Even in the midst of the rulers of this world, in the one who rules heaven and earth. This theological vision offers Jesus and all who would follow him the ability to see that all God's people, sick, broken, outcast, loser, belong to one another and to God. And that all God's people are invited into the redeeming grace of God's kingdom. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but Matthew and I have pulled somewhat of a fast one on you all this morning. You see, Matthew 4 and my opening story of the Women's March share somewhat of an idealized or abbreviated framing. That framing has to do with how the work of building community actually proceeds. In the Gospel, Matthew outlines that Jesus calls his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. First, Peter and Andrew, and then James and John. And they follow him. Boom! Instant community. And in my recounting of the Women's March, I outlined how almost magically the leadership of the march and those who participated in it developed a sense of common purpose and almost naturally came together in record numbers. But for a church with the word communion in your very name, I would guess that you are smarter than that. Community isn't an instant thing. It's a lot of work. Indeed, in Matthew 4, Jesus does call the disciples, and they do follow without argument. But readers of the rest of the Gospel, from chapters 5 to 28, know that quite soon, anger, argument, resistance, disrespect, and even outright betrayal come to characterize the relationships among the disciples. I can only think that some aspect of that presentation was intended to be instructed to the church. This coming together and sharing resources toward a common mission, being community, is hard work. Likewise, in the Women's March, the period of time from the initial great idea when the 
March was posted on Facebook on the night of the election to the day of the march itself yesterday. There were missteps and trespasses by event organizers who were primarily white liberal feminists like me and the broad coalition of marchers they hoped to recruit. Transgressions in the planning ranged from carelessness and ignorance all the way to real bigotry and racism. There were several interventions posed and uh, offered by outside groups. And at one point, there was real concern that the event itself would not come together and happen at all. But something happened. Marginalized people risked sharing critique and concern. The entitled on the inside started a little bit to listen and learn. Apologies and corrections and changes were made to the March platform. Women of color were centered and white women, the ones who initially had started organizing, who rushed into the planning work, moved themselves out of the center and allowed room for others to lead. This work in the process of building community, the hard work of building community, led to a historic event in our nation's life the largest march ever. And it was led by a diverse coalition of women who will continue to learn and grow together into the next months and years. I heard the commentator Van Jones reflect on these challenges in a speech at the DC March. He said, when it gets harder to love, let's love harder. It's not the kingdom of God yet, but it is the work of building community. And it continues. This week, the gospel offers us the saving message that our God yearns for us to know a reality, a kingdom in which love and not raw power rules. In that kingdom, the story reminds us that people's whole lives matter. Their spirits, their experiences, and their bodies. In that kingdom, relationships are risked and forged in the trust that we all deeply belong to one another because we first and foremost belong to God. It is hard work to build this kingdom, but it bears the promise of redemption for us all. So for the gift of the church in which to work for such community, for signs that such community is being forged 
even in the world beyond the church, and for the gift of God's love to break open and share with all, we say, thanks be to God. Amen.